Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek and letting us be part of your day. And Merry Christmas to all of you. This busy week continues, and today on our program, we're going to check in with Reuters reporter Jarrett Renshaw. He's out on the political campaign trail, but also following the biofuels issues, so Jarrett will give us an update. Kurt Kavarik, National Biodiesel Board Vice President of Federal Affairs, will join us. Good news for the biodiesel industry. It looks like they're finally going to get the uh, tax credit back. We'll talk about that. And Chris Galen with the National Milk Producers Federation will join us. We'll talk about uh, uh, an effort to help inform and educate consumers, help them better identify real dairy products. So that's coming up on today's program as well. But we're going to start things off today with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin, who I know is uh, busy on the uh, speaking trail. We appreciate his time. Scott, I just wrote a um, a commentary piece for our newsletter that's entitled Better Late Than Never. After a year of waiting for all kinds of things to get done, now in this last week, predictably before the holiday break, we get all kinds of things uh, coming from Congress. Absolutely. It's just kind of uh, like it's broken loose at the last possible moment in uh, 2019. Uh, but I certainly think, you know, what we know as of today, uh, I think it would all be uh, good news in some respect for U.S. Ag- agriculture. Yeah, and let's take a look at some of them. Uh, we'll start with the biodiesel industry. Struggling mm-hmm. all year, waiting to get the, the tax credit back. The, this thing's been on again, off again, on again, off again. And finally, it looks like it's going to be retroactively put back on. Right. What I understand in the legislation is retroactive back to 2017 so it's going to fill in uh 17 18 and 19 and then go through 2022 so just the backfill of the biodiesel tax credit uh is going to be a real boon to biodiesel producers for that many years um getting access to some share of that retroactive tax credit is is definitely a big deal Great news for the biodiesel industry. Now, on the trade front, as we draw closer to getting this phase one deal done with China, this has been the huge cloud over agriculture all year. And now, to be this close, and we're hearing these numbers again, $40, $50 million you know, in, in, in purchases. How do you think we're going to get there? I mean, what is? how do you see that playing out, or do you think that's realistic? Well, honestly, I, it's hard for me to see how you could get all the way to 40 or $50 billion of ag purchases from China. Uh, first off, I think the way this is being structured, it's probably likely to be actually stretched out um, over the next couple marketing years because, you know, maybe forward purchases will be counted as long, along with spot purchases. So I think it's probably going to be spread out. And there's also follow-up information that clearly indicates that there's going to be some constraints on uh, China fulfilling these targets in terms of competitive market prices, uh, up to tariff quota levels. You're hearing things like that. So uh, you add all that together, uh, I really think that 
it's probably still best based on what we know today to think of that 40 or 50 billion dollar as a target rather than a hard number uh, that's the way i look at it at this point well it's such a big number i think i said million i meant billion 40 50 billion um so it, it gives hope, but it also kind of raises the bar of expectations. So if anything that comes under that almost seems like a disappointment, but it's out there now. So to get there, and seemingly until they rebuild a swine herd in, in China, it would seem like it's going to be hard to really jump up soybean sales uh, to huge numbers, at, at least for a while. So does that open the door for more, obviously more, say, protein products, meat products going into China, but also I would think really opens the door for ethanol products? Yes. Uh, I think that you uh, will see once China completes its uh, current agreements, uh, contracts with Brazil, that you're going to see probably uh, a pretty strong return in soybeans as well. I, I really see them going towards, you know, back towards that 1.1 billion bushel purchases from us in the next uh, two to three years, which in and of itself is going to, if that really does happen, that'll be a remarkable comeback for our soybean business with, with China. In between that ramping up and where we are today, I do agree with you. I think the immediate purchases where it might be most beneficial will be in corn. I mean, come on. I mean, their their quota for U.S. Uh, corn imports is 280 million bushels. I mean, if they bought all of that, that would uh, have a big impact on the corn balance sheet. Um, and again, like you said, I think, you know, they're not hardly buying any ethanol, and that could, you know, if they would start buying two, three hundred maybe even 400 million gallons of ethanol from us, all of a sudden that really changes the outlook for ethanol and gives us uh, some further uh, upward expansion in total ethanol demand. So, uh, you know, I agree. I mean, if the agreement is actually finalized by uh, the Chinese as it's being discussed, if it's signed, and we always have to remember some caution, you know, we're always only one tweet, Mike, away from uh, everything being scuttled. So, uh, you know, I think we have to have a wait-and-see attitude until it's actually signed. But from what we know now, it's, it's, it's definitely good news. University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. Scott, I've said this several times, but in this year of um, uncertainty and challenges and problems in, for agriculture in 2019, the year is certainly finishing up better than it started and has been throughout much of the year. Certainly a, 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 some real optimism on several fronts going into 2020. Absolutely. Um, and I hope that the administration and on the political side of this is careful to not make the perfect the enemy of the good here and that we keep in mind it would be a real boon to u.s agriculture if we could just return in 2020 and 2021 going forward to something on the order of 25 to 30 billion dollars of agricultural purchases by china will literally cause a mini boom in the U.S. ag economy, uh, you know, and so uh, that's what I'm excited about is just a return to that that level, let alone the forty fifty million dollars, which I think is a, a kind of unrealistic. But let's keep in mind that twenty five to thirty billion of purchases by China is a big 
deal that will have a major impact on the ag economy. Yeah, nice to have uh, uh, some good news to talk about and some hope and optimism, some bright spots as we head into the new year. Well, Scott, as always, we thank you for joining us, and uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, Always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Joining us now is Jarrett Renshaw, political reporter for Reuters. Used to be the National Energy Markets reporter. We used to talk a lot about uh, biofuels and renewable fuels. We're going to do that as well. But uh, glad to have Jarrett with us. Uh, How are things out on the campaign trail, Jarrett? (laughs) Busy. Busy, a lot going on. Uh, it's almost a. Uh, it's a, a, It amazes me each day how much news gets generated from from all sides, uh, both from the Trump side and from the Democratic uh, primary side. But we got a debate this week, in uh, Thursday in California, and we have an well, and we have impeachment uh, today. So, yeah, never stops. I've, I have found it interesting following you uh, and your reporting, especially when candidates are are discussing ag issues or trying to lay out their ag platforms. Has anything stood out uh, uh, to you in listening to those, and how have they resonated with uh, their audiences? That's a good question. I mean, I think the, the best way I understand it is that Democrats are using the, the field, and I'm using them generically, some are doing it better than others, but um, they view uh, winning support in the ag communities as a, a test of electability. So if they can generate support there, you know, they can make the better case that they're better suited to beat Trump. So I think that's where they're going, um, and, 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 and that's their motivation largely. Some have more kind of cultural and geographic ties like Klobuchar and, and even Buttigieg, for that matter. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I'd be hard-pressed to, to, to identify which one outside of maybe Klobuchar that is, that's doing the best with the ag community. I, I mean, I think... Pete Buttigieg has certainly has the most uh, has the most visits in Iowa, has the most offices in in kind of far flung counties, um, and certainly is is advertising on ag radio, is advertising in in, in, in on, on on all places where folks that ride tractors listen. So he's certainly making the biggest push um, in those sectors. Um, but I can't can't say for certain who who is who's resonating the most. Uh, among those i mean right now it's still trump <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I think trump is still still has the art of the ag community so and, and let's let's talk about that because i've had discussions with uh, uh farmers and and media types and people on this 
topic have have lots of views and and I've had people ask me what am I what am I hearing what what do I think uh, about farmer support in the election and and you can't you can't make a blanket statement but I think a general statement is from what I've heard and and my assessment is it's much like like the last election in that um they may not like everything about Trump or what he's done or not done but they don't see anything on the other side that that most in agriculture feel would be a better alternative and therefore the the support stays with Donald Trump uh, is, would you agree with that yeah i think you hit the nail right on the head i think the uh I, I do think there's a portion of the ag community that's up for grabs uh unfortunately for democrats i'm not so sure they have a candidate that's going to uh you know take those uh um that will attract those types of voters you know it's you know, it's and the more and more I, I get into this, the, the, the better I think I understand. You know, Democrats are making plays for urban and suburban areas, and and frankly, there's not not that much in common with folks from suburban, urban centers in the U.S. and, and rural areas. I mean, I think the the, the the two groups have you know have a different different set of priorities, um, and it's tough. Uh, and I think Democrats are struggling. Um, to come up with a message that appeals to both urban and suburban voters and rural voters, and I think ultimately they're going to side with the um, you know uh, uh, the urban suburban folks because that's where the people are, right? And that's where the that's where their base is. You know, it's like why do you rob a bank? And that's where the money is, right? So I think ultimately, I think the population and just uh, the politics of it, you know, favors uh, Democrats leaning towards issues that are are, are more important to to that group. And less important to to rural voters. So I, I think ultimately that's where they have they have some issues and some troubles. We're talking with Jarrett Renshaw, political reporter for Reuters. And Jarrett, throughout much of this year, uh, it looked like President Trump could be vulnerable with farmers because we had an ongoing trade war with China. USMCA was in question, uh, biofuels issues. But here at the end of the year, all of a sudden now you can start saying, "Wow, we got a deal with Japan." Uh, deal worked out with USMCA, very close, to, it looks like, to a deal with China. Uh, we'll see what happens with the RFS, but uh, it looks like a biodiesel tax credit. Uh, all of a sudden, there are some things uh, the administration can hang its hat on, tangible things they can say going into an election year. Yeah, and I think in previous conversations, we anticipated this, right, that there was there was as much as there was some 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 angst within the uh, the rural communities. There clearly was like a blueprint to, to kind of uh, solidifying that, and, and I think you know we had anticipated at least the U.S. MCA was something that I think we we thought that you know at some point was going to get done. I, I think we were less you know confident about China, and I still think we have to see right. I mean um, where that where that particular thing goes. And Japan was good news. Um, yes, I mean he clearly can go. Um, into those communities, and 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 more importantly, uh, folks like Senator Ernst and, and and some of the Republicans that are running in tough districts can go, and uh, you know, and have a laundry list of successes that I think do appeal and that are that are real substantive uh, uh, success stories. So I I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head again. I think the you know he's he certainly he's moving in a in the better direction he was six months ago. RFS still seems to be um still seems to be an issue i guess the question is just like how much um and i'm not i'm not so certain i know the answer to that 
I think too when you when you look at this upcoming election, we know we're a very divided country, and you wonder uh, how much. Uh, uh, how big is the vote in the middle that's still undecided? Do you get a feel for that at all? I don't think much, right? I think this impeachment um, uh, saga here has kind of really hardened the battle lines, right? I think it's kind of drawn out um, that particular uh, scenario where people have kind of made up their minds, right? So I, I don't know if there's a, a real soft middle, Um Particularly in rural, I mean, you know, I live in a, a, a suburban Philadelphia. I, I do think there's, you know, people I talk to um, who who I think, you know, haven't necessarily made up their minds, um, but they're very far and few between. I I think Trump is so polarizing on both sides that he he forces people to make a decision um, one way or the other, either with him or against him. I, I think. By and large, most people have have made up their minds. I, the real question is folks like Senator Ernst um, from Iowa, some of the congressional races in Iowa, um, and what is the Trump impact, if any, on those races? I, I still think those those where you'll see some some perhaps uh, independents and moderates and, and folks that are kind of on the fence playing a much more bigger role in those types of races and less in the presidential race. And who gets out? To vote, I think that's always a big key. Who, who, which party gets out the, their base and really uh, gets them active in the voting process? I think it'll be interesting too, Jared. I remember in the last election, uh, I had farmers overwhelmingly say their two biggest uh, issues uh, that they were concerned about: uh, Supreme Court justices and waters of the U.S. Those were the two big issues for many farmers uh, in the last election. Uh, I'm wondering what will be the biggest issues for them in this upcoming presidential election, other than I don't like the other per- other side, so I'm going to stick with what we've got. Uh, I wonder if there will be some issues that will jump to the top of the list. Well, I know from the Republican side, they're, they are they can't wait to debate the issues of energy and the environment. Mm-hmm. They, they view that as a a real weakness on Democrats, and I think there's some some alliance um, in in rural America and kind of industrial America on the issue of of, of energy um, and the environment. Um, you know, obviously uh, there's some elements of the environmental movement that that target the ag folks, um, and I and I think the Republicans are going to do their best to kind of harness um, the Democratic opposition against them to those things. And I think you know I think they're going Democrats. I know in Pennsylvania. They're going to pay a price here. Western Pennsylvania is very dependent on uh, energy. You've got big natural gas fields, um, and you have leading candidates talking about uh, wanting to ban fracking. You know, that just does not going to play well for, 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 for an area that's dependent upon on, on that for, for paychecks. Uh, so I think in the ag community, you're going to see a lot of that, too, where, uh, you know, the, the, the Green New Deal is, is, is very hostile in elements of it to the uh, the ag industry and i think you know they're going to play a lot of defense so i think that's where we'll see the soft spot for uh, uh republicans and democrats in, in that it'll be a it'll be an interesting race in 2020 and we'll look forward to your coverage jared thanks for being with us and merry christmas uh, merry christmas to you mike take it easy reuters ag uh reuters political reporter jared renshaw joining us here on aoa adams on agriculture
Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. Happy to be talking with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, we have talked throughout the year about the need, the hope, the effort to get the biodiesel tax credit back in a tax extenders package, and it looks like you're going to get it. Yeah, Mike, glad to be with you. I was I was thinking about that myself, how many times you and I have talked over the course of the last few months about the effort and the work that the industry was putting in to try to get the attention of Congress and the need and the desire to provide long-term certainty for the industry to get it done as soon as possible. Uh, it didn't happen as quickly as we had hoped, but uh, we're enormously relieved and thrilled by what Congress has proposed and, and hopeful to get to the president for his signature before the end of that this week, and that is a essentially a five-year extension of uh, the $1 per gallon uh, blender's credit for uh, biodiesel producers. Two of those years are obviously retroactive because it's been expired for two years, so 18 and 19. Uh, but three years of prospective certainty for this industry um, is going to do exactly what we have been uh, preaching to Congress, and that is provide certainty to the producers, to the feedstock providers, to develop additional feedstocks to the, to the consumers and also to the blenders. So we couldn't be happier. I'm sure you would have liked even longer, but still, this is more certainty than you've had in maybe since you the biodiesel tax credit was established. That's right. We haven't had a, a prospective tax credit at the start of the year since 2016. We haven't had three years of, of prospective tax credit since it was first enacted uh, back in 2005. So we, we, we feel like uh, we, we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to our congressional champions uh, particularly those in the Iowa delega- delegation led by Senator Grassley, Senator Ernst, who was on the phone with the president, uh, talking to him about the importance of the tax credit, to, to Representative Finkenauer, who led 40-plus uh, Democrats in, in uh, make, making sure that uh, Speaker Pelosi knew this was a priority uh, for them. So th- this wouldn't have happened without kind of the doggedness of a handful of our uh, strongest champions, but also the same folks who understand the importance of this industry and this policy uh, to the success of the industry and what it does for biodiesel producers, but also for soybean farmers. Kurt, if you would explain again why it is so critical for the biodiesel industry and what has happened without the tax credit being in place. Well, because our, our, our tax incentive is a transactional tax incentive and it has always come back uh, retroactively, our producers uh, price are forced to price in the value of that tax credit when they sell the fuel. So going back to January 1st of 2018, they were uh, selling uh, biodiesel with contracts that built in the price of that that uh, tax credit coming back. So they've essentially been selling at a loss since then, carrying that financial burden. And what that means is, you know, we had a lot of companies, REG is one, that announced that they were putting on hold um, expansions of biodiesel uh, facilities because they didn't have the cash to to, to go through with them because it was all tied up in uh, the tax credit. We've had 
uh, at least 10 plants across the country that have uh, either shut their uh, doors or significantly ramped back uh, production because of the uncertainty. So my expectation is, you know, with, with three years of prospective tax credit being made whole from the last two, many of these projects will now uh, be kicked into high gear. I'm, I'm hoping plants will reopen, and I'm excited to see if we, you know, we'll get additional uh, production capacity online. And what that means is additional markets for America's soybean farmers and that soybean oil, which I think at this time uh, you would agree is, is a critical thing for our farmers to have given uh, kind of the disruption in their trade markets. We're talking with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, you touched on it there, but I was wondering how long do you think we'll see that re- before we see that rebound for the industry? How long do we f- before we feel the impact of the uh, biodiesel tax credit being back in place? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't have a specific answer for you. I haven't had uh, the opportunity to talk to our a couple of our producers who who've uh, shut their doors to get a sense. I think they're going to have to kind of look at the the economics the market's going to have to digest this this might take a month or two before folks figure out kind of the real world impact and what it means for their bottom line and 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 going uh forward you know we've got a conference in in tampa in january where i'm hopeful that we'll have many of our members there so we'll get a lot better sense of kind of what this means for the industry both near and long term yeah, I look forward to being at your conference and we broadcasting from there, and that'll be a, a big topic of conversation, won't it? I mean, I've been talking about how this year is ending so much better than it started for uh, ag and uh, more optimism going into 2020. This is one of the key parts of that optimism. That's right. It's it's unfortunate. I'm not going to criticize Congress because they're at the end of the day they're getting done what that they needed to get done. Uh, I would just I would just say to them, you know, if you if you were able to do these policies uh, sooner with that prospectivity, it it would have a much bigger bang for the buck of what the taxpayer is is expending in this area. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not critical that today's a day to to celebrate and and, and be pleased with this. Hopefully, it uh, it gets across the finish line um, this week before uh, before the government funding runs out and we don't have any other hiccups. I would, you know, I've I've implored your implored your listeners to, uh, you know, weigh in with their members of Congress every time we've talked in the past. I would do the same this time when it gets across the finish line, uh, for the folks who recognize the value that this adds, to to weigh in with their member of Congress with a, a letter or a note of thanks uh, over the holidays for them getting this done across and, and finished uh, uh, in time. Yeah, I, I've been calling this uh, better late than never. It's frustrating that it took so long, but better late than never. Absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, uh, when you look at uh, the struggle this has been, uh, I, I hope now people will realize, as ever, as people are talking about the environment and, and green movements and things like that, to you don't always have to go out and create something new. Uh, and when, in many cases, you have something right now that you should embrace, and that's the biofuels industry. That's right. And we've we were forced to do a lot of education over the over the last uh, 18 months with with new members and members who were unfamiliar with our industry you know we're we're hoping that we laid the foundation for a better understanding of the kind of the here and now uh fuels industry that is is working every day to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to to reduce our dependence on foreign oil uh and hopefully that'll pay dividends you know, in, in future years as Congress and the, and the government works 
on on carbon policies to re, you know to reduce carbon in our transportation sector. Um, it, it it was a lot of effort, uh, but that effort has to continue, and we're, we're hopeful that we can kind of build on that foundation of of the work that we did uh, in educating them on the tax credit over the last eighteen months. The biodiesel industry has proven its uh, ability to produce when given the opportunity with the with the tax credit. Uh, I would think now we could see a real period of growth for the industry. We're hopeful that's the case. Now, we do have uh, one remaining uh, policy headwind with respect to the renewable fuel standard. Uh, we expect to see uh, EPA's rule for 2020 and 2021 volumes under that program yet this week. Uh, we're, we're concerned that it's not going to be uh, as positive as it could be, particularly given this president's commitment to America's farmers to support biofuels and the renewable fuel standard. Uh, but we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But I, my, my expectation is we're going to be disappointed um, as early as tomorrow with what EPA pro- proposes in terms of uh, both volumes and uh, their efforts to address waived gallons from the small refiner exemptions that have been such a big issue the last three years. Yeah, that will be an ongoing issue for sure as we go into 2020. But uh, y- you have to feel better with the biodiesel tax credit that you're in a better position to deal with that moving forward than you have been. Absolutely, without a doubt. You know, as a as an industry, I feel like we've been fighting on three fronts, whether it's reinstatement of the tax credit, uh, defending the integrity of the renewable fuel standard, and then fighting uh, subsidized and dumped product from, from foreign countries. You know, I'm heading into the holidays this year, uh, hopeful that uh, tax credit will be resolved and, and providing some certainty for at least a handful of years out in the future. The trade cases seem to be uh, holding and, and turning positive. So, you know, if I can, if I can spend more of the, the industry's time and efforts and, and advocacy on one issue, the renewable fuel standard, I, th- I think will be a lot more successful. Then it's an ongoing effort to creating even more markets for biodiesel, more uses, create that demand. That's absolutely right. We've got a whole bunch of uh, soybean growers up in New York uh, City this week that are learning about uh, the, the, the requirements and the, the mandates in New York City for biodiesel in their fleets, as well as the new market opportunity of bioheat in the home heating oil. So we're doing, we're doing our work to make sure that there's going to be markets for this fuel. We just need to make sure we can, we can produce the fuel um, and, and uh, satisfy those demands. Well, I tell you what, Kurt, I look forward to uh, getting together with you and the biodiesel industry in Tampa in January. Hey, being in Tampa in January is a good thing when you're from the Midwest anyway. But the, <laughs> That's right. But the tone of the meeting should, should just be so much more positive with this news on the tax extension. I think you're exactly right. I know we've got a lot of relieved uh, producers who have been hanging on by their fingernails the last couple weeks and months. Um, I think they're, they're thrilled with this outcome. Uh, uh, presuming it gets through before the end of this week, uh, they have a lot to be thankful for. Very good. Kurt, thank you very much. Always appreciate uh, talking with you and the updates you've given us throughout the year. We'll look forward to talking again soon. Merry Christmas and uh, happy holidays to you. Same to you, Mike. Appreciate it very much. Take care. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Finally, some good news on the front of the uh, tax credit for the biodiesel industry. They've been struggling without it, and now they have some certainty for a few years and can move forward. Stay with us. Much more to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
Local FS is member-owned. And that means when you buy our flagship brands like FS Envision and FS High Soy, you're actually buying seed from yourself. And you wouldn't sell yourself anything but the best, would you? In field after field, FS brands are out yielding the competition. Talk to your local FS crop specialist about Envision corn or high soy soybean seed today. At harvest, you'll be glad you did. Envision and high soy are available exclusively at your local FS member company. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture. Happy to talk again with Chris Galen, Senior Vice President, Membership Services and Strategic Initiatives for the National Milk Producers Federation. Chris, thank you for joining us. Uh, You're welcome. Want to talk? Want to talk about um, an effort you have um, underway? Well, actually, a, a kind of an update, I guess, to an ongoing program to help um, help consumers uh, through some clutter and confusion in the marketplace. When they're looking for real dairy products, uh, tell us about the Real Seal program to help them make that decision, that that educated choice. Sure thing, Mike, and, and it's good to be back with you. The new Star Wars movie is coming out on Friday, and I can remember when the first one came out. I think it's episode uh, four, wasn't it? came out back about 40 years ago. And the reason I mention that today is because it was about 40 years ago when the original Real Seal debuted and it started in california and it went across the country and it was used basically to help consumers understand that when they were buying frozen pizzas in their grocery store a lot of times the cheese-like topping on the top of those pizzas wasn't real cheese it was made out of vegetable oils it was essentially a fake cheese and so now flash forward 40 years we have yet another star wars movie coming out right now And the other thing that's happened this week is that we are debuting a new website for the real seal because, just like Star Wars has been an epic conflict going back over the last 40 years, um, so has the issue of of fake dairy foods, and and we see fake meats as well now in grocery stores. So the need to have a real seal to allow consumers to understand the difference between real dairy and fake products is as urgent as it was back in the 1970s. So let's... uh explain what they should look for and and what it means sure well the real seal a lot of people may recognize it but not know exactly what it means so that's a good question it's it's usually red although sometimes brands may um, not have the uh, original red color in there but it's a little milk drop shape that says real and it's on the on a variety of different foods that basically have to um, contribute user fees to use it so that's one of the differences now uh, since 2012, National Milk Producers has administered the program, and we collect user fees from companies, whether it's uh, distributors and retailers or processors of cheese, butter, ice cream, and milk. Even your local ice cream or pizza store has an option of using it. And it basically is a sign that they are using real dairy products made in America. In other words, the milk came from their American cows, and it was the, the resulting products like a cheese or a butter was also processed here in America. And I think it's just increasingly important, Mike, because as you know, we see many times um, dairy foods that don't have any relation to a cow. They're not really made with any dairy ingredients. And so this is our 
way to play offense on that role and give processors that want to use only real American-made dairy foods a way to indicate that on their products. Yeah, I've been seeing commercials for plant butter and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's a total oxymoron. And back 40 years ago, to use the subsidies analogy again, that was called margarine. But guess what? Margarine sales have been tanking in the last 20 years. And so now they're saying, hey, people like butter. Let's call our margarine product plant-based butter. And, and from a policy standpoint, we have contended that's a violation of, of the law. But at this point, uh, right now at least, uh, neither the USDA or the FDA has done anything about it. So this is to help consumers be better educated, but you're also it also helps uh, companies uh, in in marketing their products to to the consumers, right? Right. I mean, it's 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 fairly common that uh, if you want to have information on your products, there's a lot more interest now in in where foods are from. You know, is it domestic? Is it foreign? Do people even really know the difference? Uh, and so the real seal is sort of a granddaddy, even before there was a, a fair trade indication or the certified organic program again this goes back more than 40 years so that people can really understand that it's a real dairy food and again what we're talking about today mike is that the realseal.com website's been updated one of the components of it is there's a real buyer's guide so if you have any question about when you go shopping regardless of where you are in the country you can enter in your local information to look for product lines and, and categories of foods um, both at retail as well as um, supermarkets and grocery stores. So a brand or a company has to apply for certification to be able to use the real seal. Correct. So, so we look at the usually we look at the product ingredient list and and say you know, this ha- it has to meet a certain threshold. Uh, a lot of times there can be dairy ingredients as part of a, a you know frozen food, a, a, a snack food, or pizza or things like that. Um, and so we just want to make certain that whatever the dairy ingredients they're using, they are uh, sourced from America, and it's real cow's milk, uh, not a plant-based imitator. I have to believe, and I think you have survey numbers and poll numbers that indicate this, uh, but there has to be consumer confusion right now because of all these different products coming onto the market, these imitation products. Absolutely. And, in fact, there was research that was done about a year, year and a half ago that showed that uh, about 25% of people did not know that something called almond milk um, was did not contain cow's milk. So while the supporters, who are mostly the vegan community, say, well, that shows that people aren't confused when one in four Americans either don't know or aren't certain about the source of something called almond milk. They may think that it's got real cow's milk in it. Um, that's a sign that there's confusion. So we view this issue kind of on both sides of the same coin, Mike. We're, we're dealing with the FDA from a policy standpoint and putting pressure on them. They have a new commissioner, and we're going to be asking him to really pay close attention to this issue and to do something about the issue. But then getting back to the real feel, that allows us to play offense in the marketplace by giving consumers additional information on food products to help them make an easy decision separating out what's real versus what's not. What's the website again? It's Real Seal, all one word, realseal.com. All right, check it out, www.realseal.com. Chris Galen, National Milk Producers Federation Senior Vice President, Membership Services and Strategic Initiatives, has been our guest. Chris, as always, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Same here, Mike. Have a good clip. 
Thanks for joining us on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.